Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. We took a one-week break because I got a root canal, and now <laughs> we're back. Um, and we're talking this week about the divine right of kings, and what that really means is we're talking about the connections of, like, between the divine and sort of power, like earthly power, right? And um, I have been thinking about um, it was what a couple of weeks ago, maybe at this point, where there was that um, Republican CPAC event. And there was literally a, like a golden statue of Donald Trump. And like all I could think, and I mean, whatever, I'm not the only one was golden calf alert. Like we are making idols of our political, like that was like my head was spinning, right? Um, and just like the especially sort of funny for me links between like the ostensibly like very Christian party and they're here they are with this like thing that's like so not what you're supposed to do, right? Um, and that's sort of the idea right between behind the idea of this like golden calf is that you're not supposed to make anything that isn't God into God, right? Um, and that there's a long history of doing that. In spite of that injunction, we do it all the time. Well, and it's it was the sort of the genius of, of Hebrew scripture. It was the thing that made Judaism so different from all the traditions around it, right? They, they were making golden calves of their, of their, you know, their kings. They understood their kings to be God on earth. And it was the Hebrews who said, there is only one God and that God is Yahweh and that God is not here. And then they, they created a culture that continued to tell the story that humans were human and God was God and these were separate. And I, I always sort of go back to the David story because it was such a, a great turning point for, for Hebrews to say, we need to be super clear, right? So David is this, this king. He had been sort of made into some kind of mythological creature because of this whole fight with Goliath. And he was a great king in, in many, many, many ways. But he was also really human, right? And he has this affair with Bathsheba and he then decides that it's time for her husband to go and he sends him off to the front lines of war and makes sure that he dies. And, and then he takes Bathsheba as his wife or rape victim, which is sort of an unclear <laughs> note, but not something at the time they actually cared much about. But then he, there he was sort of still this incredibly powerful king who now also has his dream bride. And it's in the prophet Nathan goes to him and says, you know what, that actually was completely screwed up. And, and for everything that everyone else thinks, you know, that you're so fabulous, I see you. I see that you are not who everyone likes to think you are. You are not, in fact, God on earth. And and David repents and wears a sackcloth and ashes. And 
And the story is held up, not because we have this broken king, but because we have clarity around who our political leaders really are, that it is, they are not God. They do not represent God. They are always human, always human, always broken, always in need of repentance and renewal, just like everybody else. So, which is why that golden calf was so alarming, right? I mean, it was alarming when, when Moses saw it out and, you know, what is that now? 5,000 years ago. I mean, it, it's, it's always been alarming. And yet we do it. We do it over and over and over again. We do it. I mean, we have to keep telling the story because we keep doing it. Yeah, it's a really, that's, I think that's sort of the crux of the question, right? Is the, we redo it, we redo it, we redo it. We cannot learn it, right? Which is probably true of a lot of things of humans and, and like lessons we should have learned. Um, but I do think there's, you know, the, the David story, right? Marks like one shift. But then I think, um, you know, when you get into, the um, sort of the universalizing of Christianity across Europe, you get into another sort of stage of that muddying of the waters between divinity and earthly power, right? So when you think about like earliest days of Jesus, there was maybe some more clarity. And then once you get Constantine like spreading it everywhere and you get popes and you get like the institutionalization of Christianity, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, all of a sudden you start getting again these blurred lines between like what is God's, what is human, what relationship does a king have to God, right? Um, and I think that stuff, you know, we won't we won't rehash the entirety of like papal history, but it's an interesting, like that that to me represents a swing back in the other direction again of we're a little confused. <laughs> we're a little bit, yeah. Well, but that was even why they declared that Jesus was God. I mean, right, there was this sort of, I guess, how do you explain to the average Roman why Jesus is important? And the Romans had man gods all over the place. Like that was part of their understanding of the world. So it just made sense to say, well, if we want to sell this, you know, Jewish criminal as the leader of you know this new world then we're going to declare him god it made it was perfectly reasonable at the time so we we do keep doing it right so jesus fully human becomes also fully divine they don't take away his humanity they they make him both human and divine and then we do we see all in history these projections of God onto humans over and over, certainly priests, popes, kings, over and over. Well, it's an interesting sort of chicken and egg, actually, um, as you were saying that, right? Yes, the context of like the early Roman world, right? Like, um, or the world that Jesus is born into, right? Um, in that context, being partially God, partially divine, or fully both, or whatever, like fully human, but also like that was normal, right? That was like a thing. Um, and so you, so you do that to Jesus almost as a way to make him, as you said, sort of leadership ready, right? Or like to make him palatable to the milieu you're in. But then it, but then it has, so it's, it's, it becomes because of that, but then it creates a whole culture 
after that, right? Where then everything that's built on that notion of him being both human and divine gets maybe watered down, but imported to priests, to popes, to whoever, right? If you're the mouthpiece of God on earth and you're infallible and you're, right? Like all of a sudden that ideal of being fully human and fully divine becomes the thing that you sort of impart or seek or try to create in other systems. And then you do, you end up with this muddied world in which popes are crowning kings, but then kings are demanding religious power and you you get like, nobody knows what's going on. It's kind of crazy. Right, and it does, there is always, I think for humans, this temptation to, um, to you know, we want to be God. We want, we want the power that comes from other people thinking we're God. And then I, I think of the, um, you know, the 20th century declaration of the Pope around infallibility, which doesn't actually say what most people think it says. I mean, it really is like under very specific conditions and circumstances and around theologies that are already ancient and it's only been declared twice. And, and there's a whole thing around it, but it doesn't matter because once they declared the possibility that a human being could be infallible, even under certain circumstances, that it changed the way, or maybe it just solidified the way that humans understand the Pope. And, and that Catholics at you know, a billion followers see their own leader as closer to God than they are, as more divine than they are. Whereas I would declare we are all divine and no one is any more or less, that it is part of who we are. So that's what's so fascinating to me, right? I think you're right. Humans have an impulse, I think, to do two things, right? One, to ourselves, sort of see ourselves in grandiose terms, right? Um, or want other people to see us in grandiose terms. Um, and we also have this desire, insofar as we have a vision of the divine, we have a desire to bring that vision closer to us, right? And whether that's like, as we talked about weeks earlier, about sort of like, um, intimate relationship or mystical experience, or whether that's, I'm going to create a thing by like imbuing others or trying to imbue myself with some sense of divinity. What I think is so fascinating about those double impulses, right, is that you and I both like foundationally believe that every human is divine, right? Like, of course, that's, that's what we mean when we say that is probably different from what other folks might mean. But the idea that somehow in order to embody divinity or to access it or to get close to it, you have to go through all of these machinations rather than just like living into the truth that is everyone's divinity, right? It's an interesting, it's like we make more work for ourselves, right? And make it more complicated than it, than it has to be. And then it was frankly by many traditions sort of actual theology, right? Um, but I think that the divinity that you and I know that we participate in isn't the power that most people wish they had. I think when people think about the divine, what they want is power. Right? From the simplest, I want the parking spot to the most complicated, please take this cancer away from my child. That there's, we want power and we want to access power and we're fascinated by power. And so the divine you and I are talking about is really like this um, wave of love that 
holds all things together. And that's not as enticing. <laughs> right, which is very different from like wealth and political right. power. And right. yeah, it's true. But it's interesting because when I think about the exercise of power, even couched as divine power, it feels, you know, to me that inevitably, and I'm not going to say anything new, but inevitably that power is divisive, is destructive, is counter the efforts of creation, right? So when we think about all the ways that divine power made manifest on earth through theological gymnastics and, and mental gymnastics is then employed in the service of oppression, right? If you think about missionizing, you think about doctrine of discovery, you think about all of these ways that we use the divine to try to excuse or explain or justify human damage, right? Um, and it gets back again then to like, what is the actual principle by which you are creating a vision of the divine, right? Like, or accessing an expression of the divine, right? Are you, are you coming at it from a place of divinity is about creation and life or divinity is something I don't get to define at all, which like obviously sociologists of religion would be like, that's silly, of course we do. Um, or, you know, is it, is it the divinity is like, is power and destruction and possibly creation, but it's all, you know what I mean? Well, and how much of all of this is just a big guess? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what you would, I mean, that's what I would say, right? Ultimately, it's all just humans trying to access, we, we move through the world with this feeling of something and we try to define it, right? We try to express it and define it and, and human words are limited, right? So all of our attempts to define the divine and, and as an extension of that to access it and bring it close, all of those are entirely limited by our human language, understanding, capacity for scope, right? Um, so our desire to make our political leaders kings comes from what we want rather than what is actually true. And at the same time, our desire to understand you know, the trees as a participation in the divine mystery or earth as part of an act of love, that is also a projection of what we wish were true. It is, it does in some way um, speak to an experience we have. And there is something really fascinating about shared human experience around these things and even how we group in shared experiences around these things. But all of it ultimately is, is a guess. And we, you know, in this podcast this season, we've been talking about all the different characteristics of God. And really, I mean, some we're talking about like, what are the historical characteristics of God? But we're also talking about what do we want the characteristics of God to be? Yeah, and that's, this is a really good point, right? Because in some ways, as we've talked the past few weeks, we've kind of talked about like, what, what is God? Or sort of what are the, the experience, like expressions of God? And we've talked about it as though those were like objective things outside of us, right? But the reality is, again, like exactly as you're saying, what we, how we project or how we describe or how we understand is rooted in real experience, right? And real desire, probably. Um, but it isn't, there's no, the whole point of something that's unknowable is that there, it's unknowable and there's no like objective truth to, and 
you know, people will say there is, right? Folks who are, um, you know, sort of believers in the scripture as the word of God as given would argue with us, right? And say, actually, there is an, a truth about the divine and it is expressed here in this book. You just need to read it, right? But that for folks who sort of live their lives in this liberal progressive religious space, what's actually going on is that we're thinking about the values and the desires and the experiences that we have, and we're doing our best to create a vision of God around that. I mean, I fundamentally think though, and we talked about this in maybe the episode that was about like how you test what you're called to, right? Like how do you know if what you're called to is divine or, you know, destroying right bad or whatever and I was just about to say it right for me the point is the, the contrast of um like creation and destruction that 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 I, I actually fundamentally believe and I know it's not an objective truth but I fundamentally believe that God whatever God is cannot be a participant in like intentional participant right in harm destruction oppression horribleness <laughs> for lack of a better word that I that I that's just not a god that I can believe in right based on experience based on belief whatever you know yes and I totally agree and yet there's an impulse around revenge around um when I mean I think of like Trump as a golden calf and this idea that like someone is going to make it all right for us and there, there is this desire for, we project it onto God and then we project it onto our leaders to create justice. That, you know, it, it will be a constructive, powerful, even loving force when I get the job I want, when mm -hmm. I get the healthcare I want, like whatever those things are. And then we, we create, we, um, we want it so badly, we start to really believe it to be true. And we we create these sort of messianic figures. We create them out of our political leaders over and over again. I would argue we create them out of celebrities, maybe out of athletes. And, and, and what a celebrity is for you, right? I mean, for me, Greta Thunberg is a, is a celebrity, right? And I, I have to be careful to remember that she is a, you know, a 16 year old girl is like just, you know. So I want, you want to go back to the beginning of what you were talking about, right? Which is the, the notion that like people do genuinely view like if I get this job, it will be like a creative thing in the world, right? Like the view is a sort of positive thing. What I think, so I, this is again where the human limitation piece comes in for me, right? Like that if we cannot recognize our limited capacity to understand the impact of things, Right. So we talked about this before about like how if folks are like, well, I'm, I survived. So God favors me. Right. Like, what does that mean about everyone else? So if I can't see that, like, I get this job means other people don't get this job and that 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 has nothing to do with God. Right. Like that, that there's something again, it's the sort of the limited way that we live and move it's very self-focused. It, it cannot, we, we sort of can't, I think, hold everything all at the same time. It's too hard. Um, but that we then ask our God or our divinity 
to only hold certain things at the same time, right? That's that when we put our limitations onto the divine, right? Or our impulses, right? So this is why I always, um, you know, there's that reading that folks always do at weddings, right? Like love is patient, love is kind or whatever. And when my cousin was getting married, I wrote like a riff on this and I was kind of like, love is not always patient because people read it at weddings as though it's talking about human love. Like the perfect human love is patient and kind and never, and like that terrible movie love story, love means never having to say you're sorry, right? Like hate that. Like, but this idea that like this perfect achievable human love, but that's not the point. The point is that's describing a divine love that humans attempt to emulate, but, but we fail inevitably, right? And so this, I, I, I think I get all animated when I think about the ways that we like, we get confused about what the divine is capable of versus what we're capable of, right? Um, and it goes both ways, right? So we, when we think that we're capable or we want our leaders to be capable of what the divine is capable of, right? And when we want the divine to be limited by what we're capable of, right? That both of those are moves that end up, you know, not great. You're reminding me of our eternal narcissism <laughs> but um that letter that paul wrote to the church in corinth was really they were infighting i mean what he was trying to do was was straighten them up and it was really like this isn't how we're supposed to be and we're supposed to be kind of mirroring something that's bigger and more wonderful than the way that that we're actually acting right now which really i think is the benefit of of that belief in God is if you can, if you're going to project that kind of perfect being outside of yourself, then trying to to emulate it in some way, you know, that may be as as good as that gets. But we do, we we are always at the center of whatever it is that we're deciding and thinking about and projecting and whatever it is that we want God to be, it comes from our own experience. Now there is a psychological reality about our narcissism. We cannot really escape it. It is the only real experience we have. And I think therefore I am. We become the center of the world. It's the modern turn to the eye. It's it's how we understand everything. It's is why we can't, you know, anymore hear the planet speak because we shut everything off and turn to I, you know, I, I think, therefore I am. And that's where all reality begins. And that's what we do with, with God too. Like, this is what I know. And in some ways it's genius, to be honest. I love in Unitarian Universalism that one of our sources is our own experience. Because as a Catholic, the source of truth came from these, these eternal, you know, eternal documents and these doctrines and dogmas as a theological student who unpacked all of those doctrines and understood the historical context and understood the personalities behind creating them and then understood the ramifications over time, it was very difficult to, to ground my entire theology in those dogmas and doctrines if they weren't aligning with my own personal experience, if I knew that those things simply weren't true. On the other hand, 
when we use personal experience as the only source of truth, we become incredibly limited. Right? So, which is why I appreciate that there, at least as you use our six sources, and I don't know why we say six because we like combine traditions and whatever. <laughs> so six is an arbitrary number, but but that there are many sources of truth, and our experience is one of them. And one of them is our shared experience. And one of them, whether we like it or not, is gonna be our projections into, you know, what we think. But that, you're right, sort of, you know, we come out of the medieval period into sort of Reformation, Renaissance, all this stuff that's like, um, totally presses hard. And it was great on like human reason and capacity and understanding and like scriptural analysis and like critical reading and all of that stuff is really important obviously for the history of the world, but it's, um, you know, if you sort of think of the, like in the long scheme of earthly human living, right? That like, we kind of, maybe we kind of overcorrected to the other side a little bit and we've got to like find a place back in the middle where we're not so driven by the I, right? Not so driven by my experience is the be all end all, right? And where we come back into some deeper understanding of shared collective experience, but more than that, collective experience beyond the lines we normally draw, right? So we live, I mean, we talk, this may go back to our, literally our first episode, right? But we live in sort of unprecedented times in terms of our global connections to each other, right? Whether they're virtual or in terms of the sort of swirls of the planet and the impact of climate behavior in one place on another, right? We live, our, our world is like this, but we keep trying to live like we're this, right? And so trying to find that place where it's not just about me or my family or my little community, but where we can, and it's hard. It's not, it's not, humans maybe even aren't built for it naturally, right? We have to learn to cultivate it. Um, but if we're trying to emulate the divine, right? Like, if the if you if one believes in the divine as a universal divine for the entirety of creation, then that divinity is attentive to or expressed through or exists in all of that creation. And if we're trying to emulate that divinity, we've got to somehow find a way to embrace all of creation, right? Or or at least live like all of creation exists, not just us. So, you know, this episode is the divine right of kings. And it, it really sounds like what we're saying is we are all the kings. That we, we are all given this divine right. We are all part of, we all have this shared power and this shared experience that it isn't just one, it is really a cult of all, all of us are here with that power, with that connection, with that experience. Yeah, it's an interesting, um, I could feel myself sort of bristle when you said like, we're all kings and here's why. Um, our producer, Amy, made the point and I, I think she's right about the sort of the patriarchy of this too. Like we haven't gotten into this, but there's an element here because what we're talking about historically is the blurring of lines pretty much for 90% of human history, the blurring of lines is between men, 
like powerful men and God and God defined as male, right? Yes, there's, you know, we can make lots of arguments about, you know, sort of the female aspects of God in the Hebrew scriptures or female, right? But, but in sort of cultural imagination, God is most often depicted as male or whatever, right? Um, and so this, so, so there's a part of me that's like, like, I get what you're saying. And I'm like, no, we're not all kings. We're not, we're all just like people who are holy. You know what I mean? Like, there's a part of me that's like, because I actually think that part of the problem is valorizing the power that comes with kingship, right? That like, that no one needs, it's the same way I feel about like extreme wealth. Nobody needs that power, right? If we're looking for collective, if we're looking for mutual care, if we're looking for expressions of love as divinity, then there doesn't need to be, even in a sense of universal kingship, there's just, I mean, it's just like, let's just get rid of kingship altogether, right? Even as a metaphor. And let's just talk about like, human beings as sacred, holy, divine being, you know? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely with you. And I, <laughs> I know you know that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. but yeah. yes. And, and I think it is really interesting that the term itself is divine right of Kings, because really we're talking about a male God giving men, cisgendered, straight men power. And then how does everyone else access that power? And when we look at it over time, over and over and over, it's kings and it's male popes. It's not everybody else. Right. Well, and that comes us, that brings us right back around to this, you know, golden statue of Trump, right? And like what happens is, and it and it's it it totally like what happens is we make our cishet, usually white men, into kings, and then we we sort of make them infallible or we make them, we make it so that anything they do, right? right? If you're in favor of them, right? If you're a supporter, anything they do, no matter how egregious or antithetical to everything Jesus or the divine stands for, right? Um, it's okay because they're the golden king, right? Um, and so it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating twist of our, of our sort of theological and psychological brains to be like the the importance of divinity is so real that I'm gonna like turn you king into a divine character, but then I'm not gonna hold you accountable for anything because once you're divine, you can do whatever you want and and nobody's gonna right. Which then again is the David question, right? So what does it mean to keep a check on that impulse, that human impulse? to make divine kings, right? To, to let people get away with stuff if we think of them as, you know? Well, it's a question of who is, who is our Nathan, right? right? I mean, the reason that there were these prophets in the courts in, at the time of David is to hold power accountable. Who holds power accountable today? And I would say it's the press, it, but I'm watching it happen with Andrew Cuomo right now, right? someone who a year ago was, you know, the national leader when, when our president couldn't be, wouldn't be, didn't have that capacity. And Cuomo stepped up and became that. And now is falling hard, which feels very American too, right? He's gonna, is it likely that he falls really hard and then he comes back again? Because we like, we like a resurgent story. But that's the, I, that is, I think, part of what 
the scripture is telling us. It's you can hold these people up as long as you're willing to take them back down again because they are not God. Yeah. It's interesting what you said about um, a resurgence story, right? Like I think, I think about that a lot. And I think about the ways that who that's accessible to is white men, right? I think about like Hugh Grant and like all sorts of other white men who have like fallen from grace. And then all of a sudden they just give it, give it like a year or two and everyone will forget and you can come right on back. Right. Um, but that that kind of grace is not actually accessible to everyone. Right. Um, which goes back to this question of who gets to, who gets to become divine. Right. right? Um, in our society. So it's a you know, experience redemption. Right. right. Um, you know, next week we're going to be talking about liberation and God is liberator and and going back to this the story of the exodus and we may go back to the divine and the golden calf and all of those yeah. things. well and also you know liberation theology and what what happens with God in places of oppression where Christianity is like important right, right? and how that um yeah, and it ties to this clearly, right? Because it's another way that we as humans take a thing and and make it work for us, right? Take a notion of God and make it serve a greater purpose, a greater good. Um, and questions of power and who has it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that we had talked a little bit about how probably, um, you know, a lot of our, our conversations now are going to turn in this way, right, are going to turn towards what is it that humans are sort of building up as a vision of the divine, and what is the, what are the ways that we're using that for good or for ill? So I'm looking forward to our conversation next week. Me too. <laughs> I will see you then. I'll see you then. <laughs>